2: That's BlueNile.com.
0: How much are hidden pension charges costing you? A new report claims that up to a third of your savings could be eroded by fees. We speak to its authors. And can you find your way out of the pensions labyrinth? Our money mentor, Lindsay Cook, tells us why she believes company pension schemes really are far too complicated. And the squeezed upper middle. We hear why Britain's wealthiest say they are feeling the pinch. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, and I'll be giving you all the week's money news in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues, columnists and special guests. A new study has claimed that pension savers are routinely being hit by more than 100 charges, many of them hidden, which potentially could consume more than a third of the value of their retirement funds over a lifetime. The report from the Transparency Task Force, a group formed of 25 pensions industry professionals, academics, and legal experts, have spent a year researching the issue and claim that if asset managers are not transparent about the costs of investing, consumers will ultimately lose faith in retirement savings. I'm joined in the FT studio by two of the report's authors, Andy Agathangelo, founding chair of the Transparency Taskforce, and Dr Chris Sear, professor at Newcastle Business School, who has been involved in conducting the research. Welcome both. Hello. Starting with you, Chris, this project has itemised the individual charges absorbed by a pension from when it is opened through to when the policy is wound up decades later. What did you uncover?
1: Well, it's taken a long time to get here because there are vested interests that in not revealing these costs. I mean, we've revealed over 100 separate costs and charges, and we're really only at the beginning. I wrote a report for the FSCP and the FCA last year, did an analysis of over 200 papers and other journals, newspaper articles, and I likened it to a 30-centimetre ruler, of which the first 10 centimetres you're told about, the second 10 centimetres you know about but aren't told the value of, and the final 10 centimetres are costs in the Donald Rumsfeld way. They are unknown unknowns (laughs) that a lot of people don't even know about and are slowly emerging. Now, the impact of these costs can be considerable, and and I'll give you a model for this. If you are putting £10,000 per year into a pension fund over 40 years and you want to get the market rate of return, something very simple, which over that period of time is about 5%, at the end of 40 years, your pension fund pot at that rate of return will be worth £1.3 million, which is in excess of the government's cap on pension funds. If you apply a charge that the industry has been set as a cap of 0.75%, you end up with about £1.1 million left in the pot, still an acceptable amount of money. But if you apply what a figure which is far closer to what the pension funds are actually charging, which is 2%, you end up with £777,000 left in your pot, which is about 60% of what you would have received if there were no charges whatsoever. However, I have looked at my own pension fund, and I have deduced, because I haven't been able to get the information clearly and explicitly, that the costs applied to my pension fund, which is a very simple one, it's in passive assets and market returns, The costs are about 2.6%. Right. Now, they told me they were 0.63%, but they're more like 2.6% in the round. And the impact is, under the scenario I described, the value of the pension fund pot would only be worth £675,000. Almost half of what it would have been if no charges had been applied whatsoever.
0: Well, that's certainly a very big disparity. We'll go into the arguments of how it has become so big in a second. But firstly, tell me, all of the research that you've carried out, how difficult was it to obtain the information from the pension providers?
1: Well, extremely difficult. If you are a consumer, I would say nigh impossible. In this context, I'm not a consumer, I'm a professional, and I know the questions to ask. But the excuses range from an initial stonewalling, we don't know what you're talking about, to it is too complicated to get the information to it is not our responsibility to provide the information. These this, layers of, the, the, layers of, the of cost, multiple yeah. layers of cost. I mean, I did a study eight years ago looking at retail funds. And at that time, I concluded the cost of owning a simple retail fund was about 3.1%. And that to get for the consumer to get access to capital markets and get their money back required 16 separate layers of intermediation to get them on that journey. 16 separate layers that in the round cost something like 3.1%. Now, that's an awfully large amount of money, which, when added to the cost of inflation, brings the return of your pension fund net of inflation to almost zero when you're investing purely in the marketplace. And we found examples. Well, we actually had a, a gentleman approach us who said, I've put money into my pension fund. I've sat there for 10 years watching the markets grow, and I have exactly the same amount in monetary terms as I originally put in in my retail fund. So it's not just a pension fund issue, it's a retail fund issue as well.
0: Well I'm now going to bring in Andy. The UK fund management industry has responded to your research which was Saturday's front page story saying it's already taking steps to improve transparency, pointing out that while there are costs to running pension funds asset managers are doing something, they're, they're doing a job for us, they're able to achieve economies of scale that a private investor trading independently in the stock market would not. Your views?
3: Well, the- The key thing to understand here is that we need to look at what it is that's driving the regulators, that's the Financial Conduct Authority, the Department for Work and Pensions and so on, to actually seek regulatory changes to protect the consumer. This is absolutely necessary because the consumer deserves and requires value for money and decent outcomes. And the regulatory structure currently actually works against the consumer in so many ways. So what we're going to be seeking for the Financial Conduct Authority and the Department for Work and Pensions to do is to actually drive forward a pro-consumer agenda which is all about making sure that the consumer has access to intelligible information that enables him or her to make well-informed decisions about where to invest, how to invest and who to invest through.
0: And in particular, being able to compare what different providers are offering, is that something that you have found incredibly difficult to do.
3: It is, and it's very challenging for the consumer as an individual, but, but even trustee boards and investment governments committees are finding this very tough too. The marketplace is so complex, there is so much opacity around the cost and charges issue, that it's nigh on impossible at the moment without any kind of standardisation and without any kind of mandate for transparency for them to actually get what they need. What do they need? They need clear, consistent data made available in a standardized manner so they can compare apples with apples, oranges with oranges, and make well-informed decisions. Until that happens, the market is inefficient. Some would say it's broken. The significance of these issues are beyond serious. They are at the very heart of the relationship between the consumer and the financial services sector. What that we're doing is all about helping the market to become far more trustworthy, through transparency that's what the consumer wants and that's the reputational change that the industry needs to go through now
0: and finally to return to you chris money readers listening to this podcast will naturally be worried about the impact of charges and especially hidden Mm. charges on their own retirement savings is there anything they can do in the meantime before the regulators get on the case
1: yeah absolutely i think the first thing they need to do is convince themselves there's a problem. Because to be honest, part of the issue is that people just don't believe that this could go on. We've had a range of scandals in financial services, but people don't believe with something like a pension fund, where you have a trusted relationship with a provider that this could go on with you. You can accept it might happen with interest rates and gold standards and all of this sort of thing. With your pension fund, surely not. Well, it does. And what I would do is I would go to your pension fund provider and ask them for a full list of how costs are applied in the round to your pension fund. After all, they're on point with you. And all of the infrastructure beneath them, be it asset managers, be it brokers and custodians and all of that complex technology, ultimately comes down to their responsibility to look after it and manage it on your behalf, right? Because it's too complicated for the consumer to have to think about. So ask them how those costs and charges are applied. And when you don't get a reply and when you are met with obfuscation or denial or a lack of acceptance or you're told that, in fact, really just the headline cost is all that's applied and people won't talk to you about things like costs supplied through trading. Those 100 um, fees and charges. Correct. When they come back and they give you these long waits and delays, please get in contact with us and give us examples. It's very important that we collate the information to put into the FCA to show them this is a conduct issue. This is a morality issue. It's a conduct issue. And just on that morality point, I'd like to give you an example of where the asset management industry, both in terms of the retail and the pension fund, quite clearly abrogates its responsibility for the consumer. Last year, perhaps it was the year before, there was a much vaunted list of principles that investment managers would follow when doing their job. Number one was we will always put the interests of our client ahead of ourselves. The word there is client. In a situation where you have 100 layers of cost, or in a retail fund where you have 16 layers of intermediation between the consumer and the marketplace, the asset manager sits in the middle, and the asset manager's clients are not consumers. The asset managers' clients are other organisations in the industry, and what they're saying is we'll look after other people in the industry first without ever accepting that we need to look after the consumer. And this is the problem. You have an immensely complex value chain which nobody, nobody within that value chain, takes responsibility for the interests of the consumer who, frankly, fund and own everything.
0: Well, thank you there, Adi Agathangelou and Chris Sear. If you have got any issues about your own pension money readers please get in touch with us. We can pass on your comments to the Transparency Taskforce, our email address, money at ft.com, or tweet us at ftmoney. Are pensions too complicated? The Chief Economist of the Bank of England, Andy Haldane, certainly thinks so, and our Money Mentor columnist, Lindsay Cook, is in total agreement. New pension freedoms promised the over-55s alternatives to buying an annuity, but as Lindsay has been finding out in her column this week, Freeing Up Your Funds, is often a gruelling battle. Lindsay, welcome to The Money Show. Good morning. You have a close relative who is stuck, as you say, in a pensions labyrinth. Tell us briefly, what's the problem and how have you been trying
2: to help? Well, Lucy is nearly 65 and she's got wake-up packs from several of the um, pension companies. She did draw some pensions a few years ago, so she's got something to contrast with. These documents give no information or very little information. The only one that suggests a guide annuity rate, it's way below any of the annuity rates that she can see in newspaper tables. So she contacts and say, why is this? And what are you doing? And one of them says, you must have a spousal pension. And she says, my husband's quite a bit older than me. He's going to die before me. I don't want one. Can I? Op-? The only way you can opt out of this is to move your pension fund somewhere else. You can't do drawdown. You can't make sure you've got a pension pot that you can pass on tax-free to your spouse, should he live to 132. <laughs> it's those sort of things. Pensions provider says no. Pensions provider says no. The one that seems to give more information is a much bigger pack. Again, it doesn't have an annuity rate anywhere on it. It has four different pages you can tear out, but you have to choose one of them. So, do you want to opt for annuity? Do you want to opt for drawdown? It's very, very difficult. You ring their helpline, go through about nine layers of security questions to be told, oh, I can't tell you what an indicative annuity rate will be unless you fill in the form and sign it. And it is very, very difficult. I, on her behalf, have spoken to very various people in the industry and, they, and I say, who regulates annuity rates? And they say, the market. Oh, that's really safe then. Um, <laughs> she drew three pensions when she was 60. The funds were worth about half as much as the sum she has now and she reckons she got double what she's going to get now, so four times as much per £100,000. is crazy. One of the forms does say, do you want to defer? And then in little print it says, be warned, this does not mean your pension will eventually be larger. Used to be, if you were 65, you got a higher pension. You live for longer. Because you were going to draw it for less. Mm. Now, we're living too long, so they've got to do all their actuarial rates to make sure it benefits the company. Yeah, looking at one of the figures that was given was an indicative rate is you get one thousand a pension for every thirty thousand pounds you've got in your fund in your fund which means basically if you've got three hundred thousand and you take ten thousand you've got to live beyond ninety five for the pension company not to be in benefit, even if they haven't used the money for anything else, if they're just drawing the capital they haven't if they've left it under the bed, you'd have to live to ninety five
0: Well, a very clear example of the confusion that is facing your relative. Has anyone been able to provide you with any useful information, particularly on drawdown,
2: which is the alternative that many are seeking? Not yet. She had a pension analysis... By a financial advisor, cost her twelve hundred pounds last year because she thought I'll get ready um, and ask a professional to and ask a professional through to take me through. It didn't even mention that one of her pensions would not allow drawdown and would insist on her having a pension for her husband. So it didn't mention that. So she wasn't alerted to a problem. She therefore thinks, which financial advisor will I go to? Will it cost more? How will I do it? She has asked the one that she had to tear out the sheets for, she said, you do drawdown, can I transfer my other pensions to you and do drawdown Has one lump sum? And one it one hasn't place. replied three weeks later.
0: Mm. Now, what worries you, as somebody who advises lots of individuals on their money worries, is that this confusion, this level of confusion in pensions is
2: providing an open door for the fraudsters to come in and clean up. Yes, because... As we all know, we use search engines and we're looking for information and we're sending messages. And then you get a flood of emails that say, are you retiring? You can get 100% of your money. Invest in this property scheme. One of them was car parks at an airport. Invest in that. Oh, that's really safe, isn't it? So it is very difficult. I think the legislation came in too quickly for the industry to get ready. There, I'm being kind to them for a moment. But they're afraid after the personal pensions years ago that they're going to get done. If they let people go into drawdown and the money runs out, they will be sued. If not by the older person, by their children. So I think they're being as cautious as they can. They want people to just choose the annuity that they say is the best.
0: Well, thanks there to... Lindsay Cook, the FT's Money Mentor columnist. You can read her full column on this subject free on our website now at ft.com money. Are you a member of the squeezed upper middle? And should we feel any sympathy for this group? Upper middle class Britons with a household income of 100000 a year or more say they are being squeezed by the rising costs of mortgages and school fees on one side as the Chancellor increases taxation of the wealthy and removes child benefit and childcare vouchers for higher earners on the other. Who is right? Our wealth correspondent Hugo Greenhalgh joins me in the FT studio. Hugo, thanks for joining us today.
4: Not at all. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Many people listening, frankly, will not have much sympathy for people who earn way in excess of the average UK salary, yet complain that their finances are being strained. Tell us what they're whinging about.
4: Well, this is it. The danger, as it's seen, is just a bunch of whining rich people. But let's take a step back. We're talking about more than 5 million households that have a household income between £100,000 and £200,000 a year. We're talking about the bedrock of the middle classes basically comes to teachers, we're looking at journalists, we're looking at basically those people for whom having a semi-detached house, having a good lifestyle, and perhaps sending their kids to not necessarily the best private school, but to a good private school, what was a given? And we're seeing a lot of pressures emerging on all of those things. Rocketing house prices, school fees have gone up by an extortionate amount over the past couple of years. And it's just become far more difficult for this generation to cope. I was having breakfast with someone this morning, who uh, an IFA. He was saying "Well, this is the angry generation, this Generation X are between 40 and 60. The government is doing a lot for the millennial generation. It's going to help to buy or a lifetime ISA. What the government's doing instead to this generation between the ages of 40 and 60 is it's taking things away.
0: What is it taking away?
4: Ah, well, there's a whole list, unfortunately. Since 2013... Households with a parent on a salary of more than £60,000 are no longer entitled to child benefit, which was worth just over £1,000 a year for the eldest child and £700 for subsequent children, so that's a lot of money out the door already. On top of that, we've seen budget reforms uh, suggesting that there will be tax-free childcare by 2017, so any parent earning more than £100,000 or more will be excluded. And then it keeps going. We've got nursery fees. There also things such as, I mean, I'm sure this will make a lot of people wince, but nowadays you will have to provide a pension for your nanny, which I know sounds desperately <laughs> appalling. But at the same time, if you are in this situation where, again, you expected this lifestyle growing up, you expected to be richer than your parents. And we talk about the millennial generation being poorer for the first time than their parents. And we're absolutely ignoring the issue of the people in between bookended between the baby booners with their fantastic defined benefit pension schemes on the one hand and the millennials who are struggling but the government is throwing things at them to help them.
0: Well I mean playing devil's advocate these people own properties and you know rocketing house prices have helped them as the value of the assets that they own and live in have increased so it's more of a problem you could say for those who cannot get on the ladder but how are they coping with these squeezing demands on their budgets what are they not doing in response? (laughs)
4: What they're not doing is they're not helping out their parents, they're not helping out their children. It's interesting, a lot of the financial advisers I spoke to for this piece said, actually, that's the key. You've got to be brutal, you've got to be selfish. You can't help out either your parents for care home costs or your children in terms of either student fees or getting them onto the property ladder if you yourself aren't solvent. The big issue here is that how this generation is affording to spend the money now rather than keep it for later is that they're denuding their pensions. They're taking money out of what they should be doing in terms of saving for the future and spending it now. And we're not talking about jam today. They're not going on on holiday. They're not all chartering yachts uh, to go around Greece. We're talking about kind of basic uh, things such as, again, school fees, property prices and caring for your parents. But... Through doing that, they're not putting enough money in their pension pots, and I suspect a lot of people will have a much worse off retirement than they expect.
0: Or have to work for longer. Well, thanks very much. That was Hugo Greenhouse, the FT's wealth correspondent. You can read FT Money's cover feature about the squeezed upper middle as part of FT Weekend or online at ft.com/money. We'd love to know what you think about this idea, hidden pensions charges, or about money matters more generally. You can get in touch with us via email, our address, money at ft.com, or you can tweet us at ftmoney, and you can leave comments at the foot of individual articles on our website at ft.com money. There's just time to tell you what else will feature in this weekend's issue. I've been looking into the merits of Lisa, the forthcoming lifetime ISA, plus we have the latest share tips and directors deals from the Investors Chronicle. The Money Show was produced in London by Naomi Rovnik and edited by Feline Reyes in Melina. We will be back next week. But for now, it's goodbye from me and our studio guests. Goodbye. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the FT's Banking Weekly. It's presented by me, Patrick Jenkins, the financial editor at the FT. And I'm joined by a team and an external guest every week. You can find this every Tuesday at ft.com slash podcasts.
4: Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much.